Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Connectivity Business News, The Dish Podcast. I'm Lawrence Russell, Deputy Editor of CBN, and today I'm joined by Michael Abad-Santos, Chief Executive Officer of Bridgecom. Michael, could you introduce yourself? Hi, uh, thanks Lawrence, uh, very nice to meet you. Uh, as you said, Michael Abad Santos. I've been the CEO of Bridgecom since uh, uh, just around March of last year, so uh, uh, just over a year and a half or so. And uh, but I've actually been with the company since 2019, and I have been in the space slash telecommunications industry for over 20 years. Um, primarily focused on um, government applications in space. I was actually, uh, um, uh, I spent the largest uh, part of my career at a company called Inmarsat slash Stratos, um, where, you know, we started their U.S. government business. And then um, in 2011, I went on to start their global government business. So very involved with the the government space community and telecommunications uh, business. Um, after Marsat, I went to a couple of startups, so I got hooked on the startup bug, and uh, that's kind of how I uh, ended up here over at Bridgecom. So prior to Bridgecom, I was at LeoSat, and then prior to uh, LeoSat, I was at um, a company called Trustcom, which is now OneWeb Technologies. So, Wow. So it sounds like you have a, a lot of experience working around um, government uh, space procurement. Do you have any uh, summarial insights from working in that field before we jump in? Um, yeah, you know, it's never been a more exciting time to be part of the government space uh, family or, um, what's the word of community. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, you know, the, the U S government is definitely doing a lot of stuff to lead the way in new satellite architectures, especially the SDA and the space force with the, the various tranches for their proliferated Leo constellations, but, you know, the the applications and and the way the market is moving is is really interesting and one of the most fascinating things to me and the things that i'm happiest about is that you know prior to this move into this low earth or or this new space uh space 2.0 evolution space was a little static um and um i would have to say the the market as a whole or the community as a whole in there wasn't getting enough new ideas out into the market and that was because you know we had a lot of um what's the, what's the polite way of saying it we've had a very static kind of community in the organization but that's changed and we're seeing tons of new faces in the space community now and that's changing a lot of our traditional thinking and we are seeing that in the applications that are being launched and, and the, the new the new concepts that are being created. And that's been very welcomely received by the government. Um, again, the only the only gripe I would have about how government space goes, it's very slow um, and industry moves really fast. And I think we're not taking full advantage of that speed to market that commercial industry is using right now. So. Lots to talk about there. I'm going to spare you and go into our prepared questions now, but um, I'm I'm sure that uh, I'd like to follow up on all of those thoughts. Uh, in April, uh, Bridgecom announced a two-way teaming agreement to manufacture and market a new ground-to-space communication solution using optical links. Could you outline that for us? Where will the agreement take you this year? 
Well, first of all, you know, we're very excited about the relationship with X Lumen, who we um, signed the agreement with. Um, but we've been in this the space business since 2015. And um, the original premise of the company was to build a global network of optical ground stations that were going to support all of these new space constellations that were going to be launched, these sensing constellations, ISR, um, et cetera, that were going to be generating tons and tons of traffic. Um, and, you know, we needed uh, to be able to download all of that traffic uh, quickly and efficiently. So we, we, as a company, we leaned in, we, um, we actually deployed two optical ground stations, one in Santa Clara, California, and one with our partner, Asailsat in Qatar. Um, and uh, in preparation for these tons of constellations that we're going to be having optical communications on them. Unfortunately, that market hadn't materialized. Um, and so I, I think we're on the bow wave of that now. We're starting to see a lot of demand um, for optical systems in space now. And yeah, we have been partners with XLumen since I believe their founding in 2017. So uh, at, over the years, we've developed a lot of joint intellectual property um, that has become the, the standard for our optical ground station systems. So now that we see this bow wave of demand starting to increase and actually come to fruition for optical communications and especially landing ground uh, optical communications, we thought it was a great time to formalize relationship with XLumen. Um, they've been great partners for us. And, um, you know, we have recently been awarded um, a couple government contracts for uh, building out optical ground stations. We have a lot of commercial interest as well. Um, so, yeah, timing's everything. And, and now we felt was the perfect time to solidify that relationship with XLumen. I'm tempted to jump ahead in the questions here, talking so much about uh, all of this work with Optical and how confident you are with it. Um, I've heard uh, off the record Optical is a, a huge uh, concept. Obviously, you can see from the movements being made in, in real contracts that people have a huge amount of faith in it. Are optical wireless communications the next big thing? What do they have over conventional spectrum connectivity? Well, um, I, I think I'm obligated to say yes, optical communications are the next big thing. Um, uh, however, I would say that it's not something that's been happening overnight, right? This We are an industry, free space optical communications is an industry that has been able to take advantage of the hundreds of billions of dollars that's been invested um, by the terrestrial fiber optic companies um, and, and I'll take advantage of all of their research and driving down the price points for optical communications. And we've really been able to capitalize on that. So optical has been around for a while. I think the reason optical is becoming more prominent and more important to the way we communicate and especially the way governments communicate is because it offers several inherent benefits that you don't typically get um, from typical radio frequency communications, RF communications, um, security. Uh, because of the way we transmit our data, it's very focused, um, as opposed to a broadcast RF spectrum where you're shooting uh, electronic waves everywhere. We are sending a lot of directed energy to a very specific location. Um, so that increases what we call low probability of intercept or low probability of detection, LPI, LPD, 
um, of those communication signals. Um, so that's one benefit of optical. The next benefit of optical is that uh, the amount of bandwidth that you can transmit is greatly increased from traditional uh, radio spectrum frequencies. So, you know, we're, we've been in the lab testing, um, you know, 800 gigabits per second, and we have a plan to get to um, a terabit per second. Um, in the field, we've demonstrated 200 gigabits per second um, at a kilometer from our point-to-point -point systems. So massive amounts of data that can be used um, to transmit, you know, for telecom, for telecom applications, you know, your, your long haul or your backhaul applications where now you no longer have to plant um, fiber into the ground, you know, and, and the time that it takes, licensing that it takes, the, the you know, buying the real estate, et cetera. Now you can just put it on a pole. Um, and we are, you know, so, so we have these really high throughput backhaul solutions. Um, we've also developed point to multipoint optical, which acts more like um, your traditional uh, RF spectrum where we can, um, you know, we can talk to multiple targets at the same time, but still maintain the same inherent capabilities of optical communications, putting photons directly on the target, et cetera. And the last thing I would say, we know RF spectrum is, uh, is a finite resource that we have. And, and we're starting to see um, uh, challenges or, or, or conflicts between, you know, terrestrial RF spectrum and space RF spectrum. Look at the Intelsat, SES, C-band buybacks and all that stuff. Um, we're also seeing a trend of increasing spectrum costs. Um, at this point, you know, uh, optical communications are, are um, I would say, lightly regulated, um, and there is no spectrum costs uh, for using that. So you get this massive amount of uh, throughput, uh, data throughput, without a spectrum cost. So for telecom providers, it's, it's, a, it's a huge way to reduce their costs. For satellite operators, it's a way to maximize their profitability. Um, by using optical for the downlinks so that they can make profit off of their return channels. Um, so I, I think that is, those are the reasons we, we are seeing such a huge demand in optical right now. Um, I, I think that the great thing about it is that the, the demands are um, multi-sector, right? So we have, we have huge amount of government interest. We have um, a lot of promising telecom interests. And eventually, as, as applications grow, as we start getting AI um, on the enterprise side, AI, VR solutions, et cetera, people are going to need more bandwidth. So I see a lot of growth on the enterprise sectors as well. You mentioned briefly um, the, the difficulty of bringing fiber around. Obviously, that's um, well understood for uh, the unconnected world. Is there anywhere that you could point to specifically around the world um, in location terms or uh, industry terms where you can say optical works better, obviously satellite perhaps, but um, anywhere uh, anywhere else that it just really does the job that fiber can't? Um, you know, we have several use cases and we're actually working on some opportunities throughout Southeast Asia um, where we are connecting islands. You know, we, we have these... Uh, proof of concepts where we're, we're connecting islands um, in order to bring connectivity, which is a lot less expensive than trenching um, subsea cables 
et cetera. Um, you know, in terms of rural rural backhaul, I, I don't think that we've come anywhere near solving the problem. And I think a lot of the problems are visible, right? Um, for example, through South America, when I was there last, uh, we were in Colombia and they wanted to get connectivity out to the remote villages, but, you know, there's it's a very mountainous country. Um, and uh, uh, fiber optics and, and traditional RF and microwave weren't optimal for that. Um, and the satellite throughputs just aren't enough to to service those communities in whole. We don't have we just don't have enough capacity there. Um, and the capacity tends to be uh, sporadic. So I, I think that there are a lot of things that we can do um with free space optics to 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 work on that um connecting the unconnected as some people would say or, or this rural broadband initiative um but we have some we have a way to go right the industry needs to mature enough it needs to have enough sustainment um if you look at the majority of the providers in the market right now they tend to be very space focused because Space is the ideal environment for free space optical communications. They're operating in a vacuum. So inter-satellite links are, are a great way to go. Um, Bridgecom has actually been focused on solving the problem stress-really. So a lot of the work that we've been doing has been um, doing really high-throughput terrestrial links um, and solving those problems of atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. Um, to make the system more stable and more resilient for a broader range of applications, not just space. Beautiful. So jumping from uh, one next big thing technology to another, um, in April, uh, you performed a successful demonstration of quantum encryption using your optical ground modem. Could you outline that for us? Yeah, so um, we, we've done this demonstration a couple places. Uh, we, we did it at um, Soft Week Special Operations Forces Week in, in Florida, and we just did another um, demonstration here for a unique customer base in the Northern Virginia area. And um, yeah, so we were able to uh, demonstrate post-quantum attack resistant encryption over uh, our, our optical point-to-point -point systems, and these these are things that will eventually migrate into our point-to-multipoint systems. Um, so not only were we able to demonstrate post-quantum attack-resistant encryption, uh, we are also able to uh, demonstrate um, blockchain and, and smart credentialing um, uh, in addition to the PQR. And the reason that we are doing this is because we want to ensure that every node on the network is supposed to be a node on the network. Um, and this is a way for us to guarantee that we know that there are no man in the middle attacks, et cetera, et cetera, um, over our free space optical links. So um, we have uh, an investor focused uh, readership who might not uh, know the bill about quantum, um, the, the idea of uh, the revolution that um, quantum capability can provide. Is there a sort of simplified explanation that you could uh, espouse about the uh, potential quantum threat and how roundabout it is countered by this uh, encryption technology? Sure. So there, there's a reason it's called post-quantum attack resistant encryption. Um, and that is because the, this is an encryption methodology that's designed um, 
for when we actually have widespread quantum decryption uh, capabilities. And that's something that we don't necessarily have right now. Uh, however, it is, we know that there's a problem because we know that our near peer adversaries just collect as much data as they can. Um, and once they have their quantum decryption capabilities, we know that they will start using all of the data that they have in order to decrypt that. So the reason we're focused on post-quantum attack resistant encryption now is because we would just want to make sure that we have that much extra assurance to ensure that um, any data collected cannot be decrypted. Now, quantum is moving fast, right? Um, and right now, I think in 2022, the estimate is that $30 billion globally was spent on quantum um, with the U.S., you know, really lagging in terms of, in terms of, um, you know, if you want to think of the superpowers, um, I think we only invested 1.5 billion last year in quantum. And if you look at someone like China, um, you know, 15 billion, right? So I think that's an area where we have a lot of catching up to do. Um, but, you know, the industry is moving fast. Um, the technology is moving fast. So, you know, we took a very kind of forward-leaning perspective of saying, okay, what can we do to, to, to kind of um, pave the way and, and, and create, a, create inroads into a more secure environment? So optical was the very first technology. And then now layering in um, PQR, uh, quantum capabilities into that smart chain and uh, blockchain credentialing. All of that is a multi-layered approach to be able to solve or increase your security and resilience. And that's that's what it's going to take in the future, right, is you're going to have a layered approach to everything um, when it comes to resilience and security. Okay, so um, you collaborated with Taj Quantum in May, demonstrating uh, a seven gigabit per second network and 10 concurrent encrypted user sessions. Could you unpack that for us? So that goes back into to what I was talking about just a few minutes ago. Um, Taj Quantum was the partner that we had, um, uh, or, or the, is a company that we had partnered with for this smart contract and blockchain potentially. And uh, again, this is all about knowing who's in your network and ensuring that the systems that you are talking to are supposed to be there through their through their blockchain technology. Um, layered in with quantum encryption. Um, the purpose or, or, or the demonstration um, that we did with Taj was over a 10 gigabit per second link. Um, we did uh, file transfers, uh, voice calls, and video teleconferencing. And what we found was, um, over, you know, over a 10 gigabit per second link uh, we only had very small overhead, maybe uh, around, you know, one and a half to two percent. The interesting thing is when we went to larger and larger bandwidths, um, the overhead didn't increase. So when we went to 100 gigabits per second, we were still at that one and a half to two percent overhead, which is very unusual for when you're doing things um, with traditional encryption, AES-256, you bring it up to 1048, et cetera. Um, so we are really surprised about that result. And it was actually very, 
very enlightening for us and we're very happy about that. That's a lot of uh, techno talk. Do you mind if I uh, ask you for some bottom lines about what that means for the technology and what you can achieve with it? Bottom line, it means that when you roll smart contracts in with uh, your typical network deployments, you can ensure that you're talking securely uh, and you can ensure that there's no one in the middle listening to your stuff. Okay, fantastic. Uh, how far do you think we are from enterprise and to a greater extent consumer quantum protection? I, I think we're there now. NIST is, um, uh, you know, and the government, U.S. government's adopting a lot of the new NIST standards with regards to quantum encryption and quantum technology. Um, the company that we partnered with, Taj Quantum, uses Crystal Kybers, which is the, the, the NIST approved PQR solution. Um, so we see it being worked in, and it, this is very typical when rolling out government solutions, you see, or, or rolling out security solutions for, for communications, you see it roll out to the government and then slowly, slowly it gets into major enterprises that have um, uh, high needs for security. So uh, banking, financial institutions, pharmaceutical, et cetera. So I, 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 I I don't have any specific proof points, but I, I do have a lot of experience saying that, you know, we're going to start seeing uh, post-quantum attack-resistant encryption rolling out into enterprise networks probably in the next couple of years. Beautiful. Fantastic. Um, so we've talked a lot about these big innovative uh, concepts. To, to jump back to some of the points that you were making earlier. Is this uh, a unique power of the private industry to be able to jump on these, um, you know, cutting edge uh, the applications? Do you think that this wouldn't be possible by government alone without the power of investment? Oh, I, <laughs> that's a little bit of a loaded question there, James. Or Lawrence, excuse me. Um, I think the government is really good at doing very, very difficult things on a small scale. Um, when we're looking at large enterprise scale changes, absolutely uh, um, private investment, private companies, innovative companies are extremely important in order to um, bring that to market. So, you know, the government has DARPA and, and various research and development centers um, that focus on very, very hard problems that they're facing right now. Um, however, in order for a lot of these things to reach scale, it does need um, investment in order to think of larger markets, right? I, I think the, the government tends to be very myopic in terms of their specific mission focus. Um, and a lot of these technologies that are being developed, quantum, optical, um, all of these are dual use technologies. So I, I think it, it does take uh, a large investment community to to bring these um, to bring this to the market as a whole, but it also takes a lot of innovative companies who have you know highly driven um, engineers to to want to solve big problems for the world as well. So yeah, incredible, Michael. Thank you very much for your time today. Um, thank you, Lawrence.